Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. On Thursdays, I'm here at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper, and we do a, a, a taping, basically, of the show for Progressive Voices Network, which gets posted later this afternoon, and then Commonwealth Club also posts the podcast up at their website. John, thanks for being with us. Always great to see you, Michelle. We have a special guest. It is a topic that is very near and dear to me uh, and to many, but it also is a topic that is scary in a lot of ways. The immigration policies seem to be changing at every second. And now that the White House and the administration and departments that work for the administration are making uh, announcements in the middle of the night, I think we should be as... Um, we should be paying attention as much as possible. Our guest today is Ignatius Bao. He is a policy consultant and also served as an immigrant, uh, immigration attorney here in San Francisco. He has worked on LGBTQ asylum cases and um, uh, many foundations and, and policies and healthcare and, of course, immigration. He's here to talk about the proposed public charge regulation. We'll get to what that means, even just the term public charge might be new for some of us. Um, but first, Ignatius, you're not a, a stranger to this program, so you know the deal. You've got to come out again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to know you first. Sure. And welcome to the program. Thank you. What do you want to know? Well, you can share a coming out story, uh, but it sounds like you know San Francisco has been home to you for, for a long time. I'm not sure if you were born and raised. Sure. So I am actually a, a refugee to the country. My family came here. Uh, my mom was uh, born and raised in China, and she met my dad in Japan, and long story there. Um, and we eventually made our way to Hong Kong, and I came when I was three. I say I'm still one of the original fresh off the boat people because I actually came on a passenger ship from Hong Kong to San Francisco um, at the age of three and grew up here in the city. Um, I was pretty closeted through my youth um, and didn't come out until the age of 30, even though I was here in San Francisco. Um, and probably my uh, most relevant coming out story was when I finally came out to my dad. One of the things he said to me was, uh, well, make sure you're not public about it. So um, uh, it's okay, but don't make a big deal out of it. So sure enough, the next two weeks, I was on Chinese radio talking about the gay pride. <laughs> John? Um, you talked about being in San Francisco and, and obviously the unique status the city holds for the LGBTQ community. Were you ever drawn away to other cities? Did you ever work any, anywhere else? Did you ever want to? So this has always been home, and I've been privileged both for work and now for pleasure to be able to travel to many parts of the country and to work in many parts of the country and also, obviously, to explore the world um, on vacation. Um, but this is really home. I think we've got a unique mix of um, diverse, uh, progressive, um, open-minded people here, and um, there's no reason to move. And my husband is also here, which also makes me want to stay here. Uh, ooh, <laughs> well, I want to talk about that, yes. too. <laughs> if I could ask, so what was it like for you and your family when you first got here as immigrants? How were you treated? What was available to you? What was the, you know, reception like? 
Sure. So like many immigrant families, which is still true today, the first thing you have to look for is affordable housing. And so one of the only places where we could find a place, my family could find a place to rent was in the Mission District. And that still is true. And that's partly why there are all these pressures around gentrification of, of neighborhoods like the Mission. And so as a Chinese immigrant family, we found a home among Latino and Spanish-speaking folks. Um, but that, again, was where immigrants landed. Mm-hmm. Um, when we finally um, stabilized a little bit and my parents were able to save a little bit of money, um, we ultimately moved out into the Sunset District. And I say um, I felt like pioneers there because when we moved into the Sunset District, we were the second Asian family on our block. And wow. if folks know the demographics of the Sunset District today, it's you know 70% Asian American. And so again, in some ways we were making new friends, breaking new ground in the neighborhood that we grew up in. And did your parents become U.S. citizens? Our parents uh, ultimately became U.S. citizens because we came in through this very specialized status, uh, technical status. Um, It took us a little longer and we ultimately, uh, they became citizens and we, because I was still under 18, automatically became a citizen as well. Do you remember maybe uh, one of the first times that you recognized that you know, there were issues around immigration or being an immigrant and maybe unfair practices or that policies in which you could see would be better served for the immigrant community? Sure. So my personal story is um, I eventually ended up in law school, not really knowing what I wanted to do as a lawyer. And I actually stayed away from immigration law because my experience of it as a family and with the friends that we knew was that immigration law was just paperwork, that you were filling out forms, you were um, you know, trying to get uh, a more permanent status, and it, it didn't seem like it was a very interesting area of law. Uh, but at that time in the 1980s in law school, that was when there was a lot of conflict in Central America and many churches and other religious organizations were starting that what we now know as the sanctuary movement, um, opening themselves up to learn more about the Central American refugees coming to the United States and then becoming safe places, um, not just physically, but really raising their voices as communities against the unjust policies, the intervention of the United States that actually created those refugees needing to come to the to the U.S. And so I began to volunteer um, with Catholic Social Services in their immigration uh, legal services, and really my eyes were opened up to really learning about the history of immigration law, some of which I'll touch on later, and how immigration law has really reflected our national values, both for good and for bad. Um, And so in those times in which it's reflected values in a negative way, where we've kept people out because of who they are and the characteristics that we don't like, and then in times that are good, where the United States has really been the statute of liberty symbol of welcoming people from all over the world into our country and really creating the diverse and great country that we now are. So as I learned that, that was my own journey to really dive into learning about immigration law and that eventually became the area of practice that I did. So immigration law and an advocate and activist for the immigrant community before LGBTQ? Absolutely. And again, as I was coming out, that obviously the intersection of 
who I was as an immigrant and now doing immigration law and working with uh, immigrants and refugees, not only from Central America, but from Mexico, from Southeast Asia. Um, we were involved in litigation around the Haitians that were detained in Guantanamo um, before it was used uh, after 9-11 to hold terrorist suspects. It was used to hold Haitian refugees in, in exactly the same places and conditions that um, those terrorist suspects are now held. Um, and I, again, becoming uh, aware of issues as they started uh, appearing in terms of the lack of recognition, as in many of our laws, for people because of their sexual orientation and their gender identity. Um, and again, was privileged to represent uh, a Russian lesbian in one of the very first cases that established the right to asylum or refugee status based on sexual orientation. You've been through this through, let's say, good times and bad, or at least mm -hmm. swings in U.S. policy. Um, how would you categorize what things are like today? Are they worse than ever? Are they this is just like the late 80s? What, what is it like? I think across the board, I would say we're at one of the, the lowest points um, in terms of our immigration law and policy, that everything we're doing many things that we don't even know about um, in terms of the way that it's been reported in the media. We know about the Muslim ban. We know about taking away legal status to 800,000 dreamers um, who are young people trying to make their life here in the United States. We know about the family separation policy um, at the border. Um, where parents and their children, very young children, are, are separated and ripped away from them. Well, what we haven't heard are all the really very, very technical things that uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions in particular is doing at the Department of Justice. And so the evolution, for example, of the family separation policy was because Jeff Sessions said, we are going to throw the prosecutorial book at every person that we encounter. We're going to charge them with civil deportation, and we're going to charge them with criminal penalties. And that's where the family separation policy ended up is because it technically is a misdemeanor to cross the border undocumented as an undocumented person. Normally, we don't prosecute for folks for that. We just put them in deportation proceedings and deport them. But what Attorney General Sessions is doing is clogging up the federal courts with thousands of cases, criminal cases, so that not only would the person be deported, but they would have a criminal conviction. And so, especially in the Southwest area, if you go into federal court, if you just walked into federal court, most of the cases that are being heard by the judges right now are criminal cases involving undocumented immigrants who have crossed and who are being criminally prosecuted for crossing undocumented, and then they'll eventually be deported um, on top of that. Um, another very, very technical thing that Attorney General Sessions has done is if you walk into immigration offices today, let's say uh, Michelle and I were actually straight and got married, and so as a U.S. citizen, I'm able to ask Michelle to be my wife and then ultimately to gain the status of a permanent residence here in the United States. Um, and so if I walked into immigration with Michelle and for whatever reason there was a problem with the application and it got denied, Michelle would immediately be put into deportation proceedings. Um, and at that interview for the green card, 
they would actually potentially take her into custody right then and there. And again, that's never happened before. Um, and so all these technical things of really, again, throwing the prosecutor a book at people, the shell game, I can also go on in terms of detention. So one of the things that we're learning with the family separation issue is that there are these private detention centers, some 300 detention centers all over the country, often in rural isolated areas. And it really is this shell game of moving immigrants around, again, who have not committed crimes. These are folks who are waiting their deportation proceedings and moving them around so their families can't find them. Certainly their lawyers can't find them. And um, again, it just stacks the deck um, and the conditions are horrible. Um, groups like the American Civil Liberties Union and the American Immigration Lawyers Association have documented, I think we're now up to 12 deaths in detention this year alone. Um, based on the horrible conditions um, uh, of, of folks, again, who have committed no crimes or simply waiting for their deportation hearings. I feel like vomiting. <laughs> That's a whole, hold my breath. Uh, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot to, to process. Um, we brought you here today to talk about some news that's mm -hmm. just come out from USCIS. The director, Francis Cisna, has... I mean, there were rumors, uh, and it was actually you uh, that spoke about these rumors of the changes to public, the public charge rule um, when you're applying for a green card. So, uh, and, and, and now it's not just a rumor, but it actually has been published. It's been announced by USCIS that they are proposing to change the regulation. So let's talk about that. Sure. You know, all of this is happening, and now on top of that, the most sure. recent news. So our immigration law goes way back into the 1800s, um, and in 1882, there were two laws that were passed. One law was a public charge law, and one law was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, and I purposely point that out as a, as a part of our history, because it really was closing the borders to Chinese on the West Coast. And on the East Coast, the public charge law was really targeted towards closing the doors to Irish coming in after the potato famine. And so this was, again, a pretext to say if they were the, the notion of being a public charge is if you're too poor to support yourself, you're going to be a charge or uh, an obligation or a, a, a burden on the public or uh, on the government. And so this was a way to keep the Irish out on the, on the East Coast. And so it's evolved, and there are other immigration laws that say if you've committed a serious crime, you can't come in. If you have a communicable disease, they also added those in the early 1800s. Um, you can't come in. Obviously, if you're a terrorist now, we've updated it so that you can't come in. These are all criteria that are going to be looked at before you can get permanent residence or commonly known as a green card. And so historically, the way that the public charge um, part of that law has been interpreted and used is if you receive cash benefits, so Social Security, supplemental income, um, what is now known as TANF, uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, um, a program called General Assistance that local governments have. So you're actually getting cash from the federal or state or local government. Then, yeah, there's a question there of you can't support yourself and you're actually relying on the government, these checks from the government every month to support yourself. And that was always the inquiry. But you always then were able to 
use something called the totality of circumstances test to say, well, that was when I had a young child and therefore temporary assistance for needy families, it was temporary. That child is now grown. I'm actually now back at work. I don't need that cash assistance anymore. And so don't hold this against me. Don't make me a public charge. On the other hand, if you were old and frail and in long-term care, you were in a nursing home, you're probably not gonna get better then yeah, you probably were going to be a public charge and you're going to be denied permanent residence or a green card. So first the question was, did you receive the cash benefits? But then secondly, you could always overcome it by showing a change in circumstances. You could also do something called an affidavit of support, which is generally if you're coming in through a family member, that family member is also going to say, I'm going to help support this new incoming immigrant um, and I'm going to show that I have enough income to actually help this new immigrant out so that they don't have to rely on the federal or state or local government. So again, it was cash, but you could overcome it either by change of circumstances or by an affidavit of support. What is ch the new proposal is completely flipping all that on its head. And so what we'll start with is a presumption that you are a public charge. And you are presumed to be a public charge if you're under 18 because you can't work and support yourself. You have to go to school. Um, and what's really insidious about the text of the proposed regulation is it actually says, well, kids have to go to school and they're prohibited from working and therefore they're public charges because they can't support themselves by definition. Um, if you're 62 or over, then again, it's presumed you're going to be a public charge because you're too old and you're not going to be working to support yourself. If you have less than a college education, you're presumed to be a public charge because your prospects for a job are less. If you don't speak English very well, they're actually going to start an English test and say, if you don't speak English very well, you're presumed to be a public charge. Um, and then we'll get to, oh, by the way, if you received any of those cash benefits and we'll add SNAP. Um, supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or food stamps to that list. We'll add Medicaid to that list, and we'll add public housing to that list of programs that you've received. So not just cash assistance, but now health insurance through Medicaid, ON Medicare, Part D, prescription drugs, subsidies as another uh, program as well. Um, we'll hold that against you um, as well. But I think while the, a lot of the media attention and reporting around the public charge has been on the, the list of which benefits are going to be on or off, really the big change is this totality of circumstances test. Rather than it being something to help you, it's now going to be a presumption against you. And then they throw in, if you have a bad credit history, if you've done these other things, those are also going to be negatives. The way uh, to anticipate your next question, that particularly impacts lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer immigrants, is when you think about it, who has some of the least prospects for employment? And having those least prospects of good employment and a higher income because of discrimination are LGBTQ people. Because in more than half the states, there are no protections against discrimination if you're LGBTQ. Um, there are uh, no protections for discrimination in housing. So you probably might be more likely to rely on federal public housing assistance. Um, 
there are no protections against discrimination in health insurance. And so again, you're less likely to have private health insurance, you're more likely to rely on a program like Medicaid. And so for LGBTQ people, especially for LGBT people of color, and especially for lesbians, and especially for transgender folks, um, because discrimination still is so pervasive and exists, not fortunately in a place like California or San Francisco, but in so many other parts of our country, then they're more likely to not have the access to education, to employment, to housing, to credit. That's another one. There's no protections against discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity and credit. Um, so you can be denied a loan and have a bad credit rating if you're um, LGBT uh, person in three quarters of the states. Um, and so all these strikes that are going to be negative factors against you if you are an immigrant trying to get your permanent residence or green card and you happen to, LG to be LGBTQ, then these are additional strikes against you as well. And wouldn't you also be less likely to have someone here, a family member, who's willing to mm -hmm. sign that affidavit of Correct. Support. And so again, even though LGBT folks are using family uh, categories or employment categories or other categories, then yes, if they're um, estranged from their um, families of origin, then again, some of those family members may be less likely to do those affidavits of support, yes. In reading your analysis, I think the number of LGBTQ folks that this impacts is pretty shocking. And we're not necessarily talking about a handful of people. Sure, so the estimates are from the Williams Institute at UCLA that there's probably about 900,000 900, LGBTQ immigrants in the country, about 4% of the folks who are not citizens of the US. That includes both people here on temporary statuses like seeking asylum based on their sexual orientation or working here temporarily or, or um, in other statuses, as well as folks who might be undocumented, including the folks that now have deferred action for childhood arrivals or DACA status. And so it's a mix of all those different statuses. Um, and again, it's really hard to, f to figure out how many of them are going to be in the pipeline to ultimately get permanent residence. Um, and so it's hard to say what the overall impact is, but it's obviously in the hundreds of thousands. Now that it's been announced by the director of USCIS, um, we're in this period, it's a, I think it's a 60-day period in which the public can make comments. So, um, so not yet. Uh, not so yet. The way that the federal government bureaucracy grinds on is, as you alluded to, we had first heard about this proposal in a leaked executive order way back in January of 2017. And then we saw leaked versions of this proposed regulation. It's not a statute. It's, it's just a regulation from the Department of Homeland Security. So we saw leaked drafts of it in February and March of this year. And then now we've seen the quote unquote final draft from the Department of Homeland Security, um, as you alluded to, released very unusual um, on a Saturday night in Washington, DC, um, when Homeland Security is not open for business, um, that they posted it on their website. It's 447 pages. I have it right here. Um, and um, it is not yet still the official proposed regulation, which has to go into something called the Federal Register. So once it gets published in the Federal Register, then that 60-day clock for when we can comment on it starts. So if someone is looking for information on this, such as a co-host of a radio program on this, 
And they go to the CIS or the the, the Homeland Security uh, website this morning, say at about ten. The information they're going to find is not current. I mean, it's not. It, it's, it's not still, going to It's still that four hundred forty-seven page draft, which is not the official regulation yet. Yeah. So. Let me put in a plug. If folks want more information about this, there's actually a national campaign of about 300 different organizations that includes LGBT groups, um, faith groups, legal groups, labor, um, children's groups, um, all kinds of, of health and human service providers. And so they've come together in something called the Protecting Immigrant Families campaign. And so it's just Protecting Immigrant Families one whole word.org um, has all the resources and they will be putting out when it's officially published in the Federal Register and when that 60 day clock for commenting and they'll link to there's lots of different social media and other platforms that are going to be used to generate comments and, and help people write comments um, to send in um, opposing this. This news is paralyzing, debilitating to a lot of uh, folks in the immigrant community who've already, you know, started to not show up for the services that they're used to getting because they're afraid. Uh, very many people, including folks in the LGBTQ immigrant community, can be afraid to act. When you talked about, you know, the public comments part of what we can do, how much impact in, in your opinion, can this have? Could this, if we, get, we drum up enough support, could they change their mind? Is that what we're gunning for? So I think part of our theme with the Trump administration is you have to do everything you can to resist as well as to ultimately change that administration and change who's in Congress as well. Um, so... I can confidently say that the advocacy that has taken place to date through the Protecting Immigrant Families campaign has actually had an impact. And let me explain one specific way in which it's had an impact. One of the, again, really highly technical things that um, federal departments have to do is to say when they issue a regulation or propose a regulation like that, they actually have to describe what the human impact is. Um, and typically for this administration, they kind of um, didn't take that very seriously. And they said, oh, this isn't going to have much of an impact. It's just another one of our policy changes that we want to make. And so a lot of groups actually went into the Office of Management and Budget, which has to approve these regulations from departments like the Homeland Security Department, and said that's really not true, that this is going to have a huge impact. It's going to have an impact on immigrant families. It's going to have an impact on hospitals and healthcare systems who are not going to see their patients come in. It's going to have an impact on educational institutions because kids are not going to be able to go to school or not going to have healthcare, so they're going to be sick and they're going to not be able to attend school. And so lots of different groups went in and said, you've got to change that finding that there's no impact. And so now now in the text of this proposal that we've seen, the Department of Homeland Security actually admits this is going to create health problems. This is going to cause costs to go up in healthcare because hospitals are going to see people that are sicker in their emergency rooms who don't come in when they need to. This is going to have an impact on grocery stores and 
local food outlets and farmers markets. It's going to have an impact on the agricultural sector because less people are going to access SNAP or food stamps. And so they're actually making all these findings. We're no longer needing to argue these things. The Department of Homeland Security has actually admitted all that in this proposed regulation. And yet they said, despite all those impacts, we still think this is the right policy and we're going to go forward with it. Um, and so I think the fact that people are resisting and organizing and, and um, pulling these arguments together is going to make a difference. What we also know is that if um, lots and lots of comments are submitted, if we get hundreds of thousands of comments in, um, it may not ultimately change their mind, but it will slow them down because they're going to have to read all those comments. They're going to have to respond to those comments. And um, it also will show members of Congress who can also potentially intervene and override this to say the widespread opposition to it from all sectors. It also, I think, is really important. The final thing I want to say is, Michelle, as you said, immigrant families are obviously already feeling under attack from all the other policies and really feeling afraid and besieged by all this. This is also a way to empower them to use their voices, whether they're citizens, whether they're registered to vote, they can submit public comments as a civic um, activity. And it's not lobbying, they're not going to get into trouble. Just as someone living in this country, anybody can voice their public opinion about this. And that's one of the actual hallmarks of our democracy is that the public can comment and get engaged. And it's those kinds of things that I think we all need to do more of is to not only call our members of Congress or call the administration, but when there are these kinds of opportunities to formally submit comments, we all need to do so. So November is important. So the elections are also really important because members of Congress have um, universally looked at this and um, especially on the Democratic side, as you might expect, um, condemned the proposal even before it's formally um, out there. Um, are thinking about legislative overrides about this. But I think a lot of um, moderate Republicans are also really disturbed, especially when they realize the impact of this. And just to show how extreme the proposal is, it actually, in my mind, is a, a regulatory way for the Trump administration to try to enact a bill that has been introduced by two of the most extreme uh, lead conservative members of the Senate, Senators Cotton and Purdue, they introduced the bill back last year, which would essentially do this. It would cut the number of immigrants in half, the number of green cards in half. It would eliminate a bunch of fam family categories, and it would re shift the system so that the only people that could get green cards were young people, highly educated people, people who spoke English, and people who had lots and lots of money. And so, again, go back to my factors. You know, it's about age, it's about health, it's about education, it's about employment. So it's actually a backdoor to enacting this bill, which has just sat there, and even the Republican-controlled judiciary committees, which would hear the bills, haven't even called a hearing on it. Senators Cotton and Purdue haven't gotten a single other senator to sign on to their bill. And so this is really an extreme proposal that no other Republicans have endorsed, and yet now the Trump administration is trying to make the policy through regulation.
Are there legal avenues of opposition as well? So as a former lawyer, there's always legal challenges. So just as the Muslim ban was challenged, right. the rescission of DACA was challenged, we fully expect that there will be a challenge to this. Um, I won't talk about all the legal theories, but let's just say that in the same sloppiness that they um, issued the Muslim ban originally and somewhat of the sloppiness in which they rescinded the, the DACA program for young immigrants. There is some sloppiness in the way that they've done this regulation as well. Um, they haven't dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's. We're obviously not going to tell them that um, and save those arguments for court. Uh, but the way that um, I guess the layperson way to explain it is the way that they have completely flipped this test on its head. And rather than it helping you, really being a presumption against you, is so far against any of the prior cases, any of the prior interpretations, um, that the, it would be uh, uh, really vulnerable to legal challenge. Can I get into what I hope is not too much of a detail on this, but I've, I've read conflicting things, mm -hmm. which is not surprising considering the status of all this. But one was that this would affect um, an, an immigrant applying for, you know, say a green card, who had ever used any of those yes. issues. Yeah. And then another version I saw said, no, only at the time that you were applying. Yes. Yes. So what, what, what is this? So lots of these technical things are, that's why we're waiting until the final final, because okay. um, there may there's a small possibility that there may be changes. So yes, it is if you are currently receiving any of those benefits that I listed and talked about, or you've ever received them. And then there's lots of technical tests that they propose to um, test uh, um, both the duration as well as the amount of those benefits that you've received in the past. There was also some question whether the receipt of benefits by your children, including U.S. citizen children, so example, um, uh, a mom might have a child who's on Medicaid mm -hmm. and who's fully eligible for Medicaid because they were born in the U.S. and a U.S. citizen. The text that we have now seen says that the benefits received by kids won't count against the parent, um, and that's a good thing. Um, and so there's still going to be some confusion. The last area of concern was whether or not this was going to be retroactive, whether it was benefits you've received in the past before this change gets implemented. And it seems like the text says that it will only be applied prospectively. So once the rule gets finalized, if it isn't held up in court challenges, that it will only be benefits received after this change. So all that is good news. We're going to open up for questions soon. So if you're in the audience and you would like to ask Ignatius a question, John has a mic that he will pass uh, around and just speak into the mic because we are recording it for the podcast later. Um, this, I mentioned, I opened the show, it's personal. And this is extremely scary for myself, for me. You know, my parents immigrated here. They were refugees from Laos. And uh, my dad died just two years after they got here to the United States. I was two years old. My sister was one. My youngest sister was two months. Um, so my mom had five young kids, 10 and under, uh, to raise in a country that she just moved to. We had no choice but to rely on assistance. And, you know, to, to look back at it all, I think, I, I don't really know how we would have lived. We, we lived all in, in one room. 
and as adults now, all five of us have put ourselves through college. All five of us are employed. Um, I guess I'm very lucky to be here sitting with all of you and independently producing this. And so, I, you know, the narrative all seems to be stolen and all over the place in the immigrant contribution to this country. Fast forward to me as an adult today, I've married a woman that I've fallen head over heels. You could follow my social media and you'll puke by <laughs> how grossly in love we are. And she is from Thailand. And she's learning English. The other day I realized that she was calling everything white gray. And it's because we call gray hair gray. Uh she likes for me to pluck her gray hair. So she thought that that meant it was white hair because it's technically white to her. So now I'm worried about her English proficiency <laughs> skills. Uh, but I say all this, you know, she's going doing her thing, going to Alameda adult school. We're same sex couple. Um, you know, um, I'm an independent producer. I can't be making a ton of money despite what you see here. It's all really just to make it all look good. Um, <laughs> But what I want to say to you, Ignatius, is going back to the narrative being stolen about the immigrant contribution to this country. And I'm trying to understand, uh, and I'm understanding more now, that a direct uh, and um, obvious attempt to really only have a certain kind of person be able to be here, to be a resident, to be a citizen. Absolutely. And so that notion of historically we have precedent. So immigration laws in the early 1900s explicitly were debated on the floors of Congress with um, senators and representatives saying, we want to keep those darker complexion folks at that point from Southern Europe um, out, and we actually want more of people like us to be here. And so there were explicit, that's the first time we had national quotas that restricted the numbers from certain countries, and they explicitly skewed it back to Northern European countries because it was the more recent immigrants coming in in the early part of the century were from Central and Southern Europe. Um, we have um, the sorry history of in World War II when the international community recognized the refugee crisis that was created by those wars, including so many Jews that were displaced from all over Europe and had fled all across the world, we were so late in ratifying those international agreements that recognized who refugees were and admitted them. And now another one of the things that the president has done is has cut the number of refugees that we admit to the lowest level ever since World War II. And the number that are actually going to be admitted this year are about half of that. So it's going to be about a quarter of what was previously admitted. So we really are changing this. And yet, when we look at the facts, so back to changing the narrative, back to what's in the text of this proposal itself, is there's lots and lots of data and statistics. And those of you who know me as this policy wonk and, and numbers person, I love diving into the data. But the data simply says that immigrants are just like 
other Americans. And so we use these benefits at the same rate as everybody else, exactly in the same circumstances in which they're designed for. So Michelle, your uh, story of your mom and your family needing the, that kind of assistance at that point when your dad died and she had no other alternative, that's exactly what those programs are there for, uh, for to help low-income families, to help working families. The other thing is that 63% of those on these programs are actually in working families. And the, only, the other ones are the ones who um, have newborns and can't go to work or are really old and can't are disabled and, and can't work them as well. But the overwhelming majority of these programs are helping working families like, like the family that you described growing up. And so the data doesn't show that immigrants are taking more than Americans. They're using these programs exactly at the same rate as anyone else. And so this really is a pretext for these broader, longer-term policies. And again, I'm not making this up. You can go to these anti-immigrant groups, groups like the Center for Immigration Studies, which is a, a nice um, Orwellian term for this anti-immigrant group. And they have very explicitly on their website, this is our agenda. We want to cut immigration. We want to change the types of immigrants coming in to more English-speaking, highly educated folks who aren't from those SHIT countries that President Trump refers to. And so, uh, again, the agenda is very, very clear. And just as the president and these anti-immigrant groups have targeted Muslims and Mexicans and Africans and Caribbeans, and now the entire swath of immigrants coming in um, who incidentally, and perhaps not coincidentally in recent years, have come from Mexico and Central and South America and from Asia and not from Europe. And so it, it really is, again, as I say, trying to change the complexion and the characteristics of who we let into the country. Well, if I got to go, then I'm taking my fish sauce with me. <laughs> Let's open up questions to the audience. Thank you uh, for addressing this uh, very important issue. It's very close to my heart also. I, uh, I thought uh, maybe if you can also comment a little bit on how the impact and the implications, not only on the immigrants' uh, uh, community, but to the uh, the general community, the larger community, and particularly, I'm interested in if you can talk about public health. You know, for example, if people are not really getting immunizations, uh, or people there's a pandemic happening, what kind of scenario uh, this kind of uh, false false attacking on immigrants, but has implication to a wider society? And if you can provide some kind of scenario so we can see how insidious this could be. Sure. So regardless of what folks think about Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act is I think everybody across all political spectrums agree that folks need health care, folks need access to health care, and that it's better to have that health care delivered by a doctor than in, in an emergency room, that it's better to have preventive care than to be so sick that you actually have to go to the hospital and have acute care. And so from a public health perspective, whether it's communicable diseases like the flu or pneumonia that can spread rapidly if folks aren't immunized, or whether it's something like um, cancer or diabetes in which early detection and early diagnosis is always better. It's going to save not only lives, but it's going to save acute costs later on. So by 
scaring immigrants away from programs like Medicaid or the technical Medicare utilization. What that means is that all the work that we've done, at least since 2010 with Obamacare, to try to get people covered with health insurance, to try to get them assigned and matched with a doctor that they trust and they can go to for their pr primary and preventive care, so that we don't rely on emergency rooms and, and hospitalizations and actually save money to the system and to the taxpayers overall by getting folks in early and doing that early detection and diagnosis. All that work can be undone if folks are scared to get um, Medicaid. But also we know what we now in public health call the social determinants of health, which is health is not just, your health and well-being is not just about health insurance. It's not just about going to the doctor. It's also about good nutrition. It's also about exercise. It's also about environmental conditions. So a program like SNAP which or food stamps is also really, really important because a lot of families don't have enough disposable income to eat the right things, to have a good diet, and they have to rely on fast food because they're working three jobs and they don't have enough money and they don't have enough time to prepare healthy meals. And so a program like SNAP that they can take to the farmer's market, get better groceries, um, fruits and vegetables is also really important to their health and the health of their families. And so all these programs are interrelated. We also know in terms of housing that if you don't have stable housing, if you're at risk of homelessness, then your health is going to suffer as well. And so again, the fact that people are using public housing programs and vouchers like the Section 8 programs help them have some stability in housing. The housing often isn't great. We know that uh, from the housing crisis here in San Francisco. But but at least it's something. And so again, all those factors are also related. So in response to the question, it's not just scaring people away from Medicaid, but scaring away people from SNAP or food stamps and public housing will also have a detrimental impact. And so to the system and to taxpayers, when people are sicker, when people are in the emergency room, we all pay more because those costs go up overall and we all end up paying it whether or not we're paying um, our, for our health insurance through our employer or by ourselves through the, one of the Affordable Care Act marketplaces or using programs like Medicaid or Medicare. We have a question here. In my experience, people from Northern Europe these days aren't interested in coming to this country, uh, not exclusively because of, but partially because of the current administration. Therefore, <clears throat> the people who want to come here are other than that geographic area. It sounds as though, from what you're saying, the current administration would prefer to get the people who don't want to come here. So have they, is it any, there any clue that they have calculated the impact what they're doing will have on this country long term, both socially and economically? So I'm not quite ready to ascribe it to all of the current administration, but clearly these anti-immigrant groups have been very explicit that their roots are in in parallel to the white nationalist and the other kinds of racist movements that we've also seen emerge with a little more audacity in under this administration. And so those, those interconnections politically and socially and culturally are actually there. These go way back even to the eugenics movement um, where again, 
we thought that there was a superiority by, based on racial characteristics. What we do know, what the evidence does show, is the president has, in his SHIT comment, said, why can't we get more people from Norway? And so that was in his explicit endorsement of more northern European immigration and less immigration from the Caribbean and from Africa. What I think it's more, it's, it's not only changing the complexion and the character, but it's also the absolute number. And what ultimately I think the intent is to drive down the numbers, just as um, the administration has done with refugee admissions. It's also, again, the, the goal of these anti-immigrant groups has always been to cut in half the number of immigrants, about a million. People get green cards every year right now, and so they want to cut that number in half. We might see a new program in which we proactively go over there and take people, people from Norway and bring them over, kicking and screaming. Do we have any other questions? Back here. A couple of weeks ago, I was in um, rural Colorado, San Miguel County, um, tiny, tiny community, 700, 2,000 people, 96% um, white, 86% voted for Trump. Um, and they're having the same issues, uh, uh, health housing, food security, everything you're talking about, Ignatius. So um, do you have any strategies or, or recommendations on how we might bridge this conversation with those who are experiencing such similar um, circumstances but are so anti-immigrant? Thank you. So one of the things I've been saying within the Protecting Immigrant Families campaign is that I think we've been trying to hone and sharpen our messages around immigrants and the contributions, the net contributions that immigration makes to our country and the value of having a diverse population in a global economy, in a world that is much, much more interconnected by technology, that those are all values that we should be ascribing to. And I think, we're, again, we're sharpening our messages about the value of immigrants and the value of immigration. I think as a country, though, um, in part, again, driven by the wedges of this particular president, we have a much, much difficult, more difficult time talking about poverty and about income inequality. And I think at the root of a lot of what people are experiencing, especially the Trump voters, especially those in what we call red states, are that they haven't seen the economic prosperity. They haven't seen their wages go up. They haven't seen the fact that their housing is getting better or their opportunities are better. Um, they are dealing with the opioid crisis. They're dealing with a lack of good health care because they are in rural and small areas where there just aren't providers. There just aren't hospitals. And so the fact that you could have access doesn't mean anything if there's no access um, that's close to you and accessible by transportation. And so I think having a bigger conversation in this country and a much deeper and more difficult conversation about how resources are allocated, how our taxpayer money is allocated, how we can support all communities, and that it isn't a one-size-fit-all, and it isn't everybody gets the same, that those in rural communities need more access because they're driving two hours to get to the nearest provider or to the nearest place that they need to go to. And so a lot of their problems and challenges are actually going to be more parallel to those in dense urban 
urban areas in which uh, the population density is creating the issue. There, it's the population, the lack of population density is creating those kinds of challenges. So I think there is common ground um, in ways that we can talk about those kinds of challenges and talk about what does prosperity for our country and for our families and our communities and our neighborhood look like. It is that sense of opportunity, it is that sense of, of advancement. And going back to Michelle's own family story that um, if we give folks that kind of temporary help, which is what governments should do, federal, state, and local, then people can succeed. If those opportunities are provided to them, they can pursue education and employment and then be taxpayers and contribute and give back to our society. And so I think there are many, many strands of commonality that we have that we can't continue to vilify and somehow make as shameful and as embarrassment the fact that we have public housing. That's a good thing. The fact that we have food stamps, that's a good thing. The fact that we have Medicaid, that's a good thing. And we shouldn't say that those are negatives, but those are things that are there to help all of us and to help all of us as a country. I mean, it's a, sorry, but it, it's, it's a political way of framing it that they've done it because, I mean, my family growing up, when my mother went back to school, we were on food stamps briefly. And thank goodness that was there. And again, it was exactly what it was needed for. It, it allowed her to, her and my mother, serve decent food while she went back, went to grad school, and went on and worked for another 30 or 40 years paying taxes and put three kids through college and stuff like that. Um, kind of going back to the question before, instead of a leader coming out and saying, these are the commonalities, we're all facing this, and these systems are here to help everybody, and you know, uh, you, can, you can see yourself in, in what they're going through, it's much more of saying to kind of the, the white folks over here who are having these problems, they're the ones who are causing the problems. And I'm you know, pointing at, at, at minorities and immigrants from other countries. Um, this isn't really the, I mean, it's not a question for a lawyer necessarily, but I mean, how can that conversation be changed? Or do you see any sense that that is? Or, I mean, what, if Donald Trump had not been president, would that... Uh, that movement, that, that feeling that some people have still has been growing? So the way that I would answer that question is actually to take something from the movement for LGBT rights, and particularly the marriage equality movement, is that a lot of what we learned through that movement and the success of that movement was it's one thing to talk about rights in the abstract. It's another thing to talk about people and to talk about relationships. And when we change the conversation from a civil rights conversation to a conversation about relationships, a conversation about love, a conversation about family, then people could relate. And as people also came out and demonstrated the fact that their relationships existed and showed people that their relationships existed and they didn't have three heads and, and four feet and that they were just like their neighbors, um, then that notion that marriage equality of being so threatening or so abstract didn't happen. I think the same is actually true in, in Kevin's uh, observation about there's so many parts of the country in which are overwhelmingly don't have immigrants. So the data actually says that only 7% of the entire country, only 22 million out of 323 million people are of an immigrant background. So more likely than not, 
you are not an immigrant. And there are lots and lots of places, not here in San Francisco, but lots and lots of places in which you could actually not know somebody who's not born in the United States and a US citizen. And so I think taking a page of changing this conversation to also about who is my neighbor, who is my coworker, who are the other students in my classroom that my kids are going to, and really reaching out and trying to understand people on that personal level, I think will help this conversation before we get to the conversation about net economic benefits and, and, and all that. I think just, again, bringing folks to a place in which they can see the humanity of each other. Um, and unfortunately, the president and many of our political le and elected leaders today are more content to divide rather than to unify and to sound themes that and support those kinds of efforts um, to work across those differences and really see each other as Americans, as common um, residents and citizens of this country. We're winding down on time, and so I'm going to ask the last question, but uh, I'm going to, you know, conclude this talk even by sharing a story about my mom. And I shared with you my dad died and what she had to go through. Today, she's 63 years old. She's semi-retired, but she works part-time for the Stockton Record, a local newspaper in Stockton, California, uh, inserting, you know, those ads into the papers, and she enjoys it. It doesn't matter how much she gets paid hourly. It's not about that, but it's about just she's always going to want to work. And recently um, she was informed that the printing plant, the Stockton Record, is going out of business because of the tariffs that the president has imposed on newspaper, uh, the, the actual newspaper newsprint. paper. Yeah, the newsprint, because um, we get that through a Canadian country, and he wanted to this whole thing where we're going to buy American from a, you know, a blah, blah, blah. But anyway, the uh, impact of that is that a lot of these local newspapers had have to cut down. Newspaper circulation is down by X percent. Anyway, it really wasn't an industry that we were going to see such significant um, retention of funds or money into the country. So she's freaking out, not, you know, for a lot of reasons, um, she's going to lose her health care and, you know, she's not going to have that financial freedom of the couple hundred dollar check that she gets every two weeks. She does whatever with, buy stuff that I more than likely yell at her for. Um, but it's just that, that that's being taken away is the, the financial, her own financial freedom, her will to want to work. That coming here to this country never meant that it was about being able to take the social services and live off of it, but but that to her, like it gave her an opportunity to be where she's at today. And so we have an idea. We're going to show up at the Stockton Record at the very last day and throw everybody a go-away party, a, a layoff party. I'm probably going to sneak and try to register people to vote um, and, and just start talking about these things that it's impacting all of us. It truly is impacting all of us. So my last question to you, Ignatius, is about the movement in itself. And we, uh, you answered the last question in talking about it marrying uh, the LGBTQ movement. We just heard that the president or this administration has also announced um, restrictions of uh, United Nations and, and diplomats of same-sex couples who are not necessarily legally married, but that those visas will be revoked. So that's another way in which we're being negatively impacted. And the LGBTQ activists seem to have been um, 
uh, provoked by that. And definitely, you know, and I've been waiting for a lot of these organizations to start talking about immigration inclusively of our community. You mentioned 300 organizations have signed on to the Protect Immigrants, uh, Protect Immigrant Families uh, campaign, and, uh, and that's inclusive of LGBTQ organizations. But do you feel, do you feel as if, uh, you know, we could be doing, of course we could be doing more, but I guess what I really want to say is I'm feeling as if the larger organizations, ones who really made an impact for something like marriage equality, that they could be doing more. So, again, I think we're all feeling just as immigrant families on the ground are feeling in their communities besieged by all these policy changes and, and that are both um, real as well as proposed and, and potential. I think in the LGBT movement, um, folks are also similarly feeling besieged, um, in particular about the ways that um, there have been so many cutbacks in the commitment to advance LGBT rights. And so I go back to something that Hillary Clinton said, um, first at the International Conference of Women and then at the UN, which is we have to get to a place in which we don't silo or limit our view of, of what our rights and what our responsibilities are. And so what um, Hillary Clinton said in, in Beijing was that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. And then when she went to the UN, she said LGBT rights are human rights and human rights are LGBT rights. I think we also need to say LGBT rights are immigrant rights and immigrant rights are LGBT rights. And there's always that kind of intersection um, among our issues, among our, our identities, among our populations. And I think the struggle is not necessarily just the movement organizations, but back to Kevin's comment, I think the greater struggle, the greater challenge before us is talking to ordinary people, to talking to people in our families, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, at our schools, at our places of work, um, do we talk about these kinds of issues? Or is it just among that circle of, of friends and family and social connections? Are we that echo chamber? But I think we have so much more that we can do as individuals to reach out to people that are already in our networks and just, again, learning from the, the LGBT movement and the marriage equality movement. If we have those courageous and difficult conversations with folks, we can actually change their hearts and change their minds. And that's ultimately what um, we need to do. I'm ready. Bring it on. Thank you so much for joining us here for the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club. We're here every Thursday at noon. Uh, the entire month of October is focused on immigration. And so we have even volunteer attorneys who have just returned from Texas and representing some of the families who have been separated. So make sure you check out commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for the entire schedule. You can catch me online as well at michellemeow.com. We want to thank Ignatius Bao for being here with us today and being our special. I mean, today was incredibly special. That website one last time? Is protectingimmigrantfamilies.org if folks want to respond to the public charge regulation. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.